Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport, a retrospective series on the most compelling, the most controversial and the most extraordinary riders and races in cycling history. Written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. In our previous episode, we retold the story of Fausto Coppi's legendary long-range attack at the Giro d'Italia that defined his rivalry with Gino Bartoli. From one extreme breakaway to another then, and this time out, we're riding with Andy Hampston, who, with the help of sheep's wool fat and neoprene diving gloves, conquered the snow-capped Gavia to become the first American to don the Madlia Rosa in 1988. It was the day that did more than any other to make Hampston the first and only American to win the Giro, and a stage otherwise known as the Day the Hard Men Cried. Andy Hampston's legendary ride into pink on the Gavia was one of the most indisputably brilliant and unquestionably ludicrous days in the mountains, writes Colin O'Brien in his book Giro d'Italia. What the then 26-year-old Hampston did that day made Bernard Eno's 1980 win in Neige Baston Neige seem, at least meteorologically, like a walk in the park. The American defied heavy snow to ride clear of his rivals on the 16.5-kilometre climb, cutting through the slush on gradients peaking at 16%. But it wasn't simply a race to the top. With the finish down in the valley at Bormio, it was the treacherous descent of the Gavia that day that was to prove key. After all, the first man to the top would finish 47 minutes back after resorting to walking part of the icy downhill. But given Hampston didn't even win the stage that day, something many people forget, just why has the 7-Eleven rider gone down in folklore for his exploits on the Gavia? So, who was Andy Hampston? If you close your eyes and think of America's only winner of the Giro, He's probably wearing a 7-Eleven jersey, a wool beanie, some black gloves and what looked like a pair of ski goggles while riding through a blizzard on the Paseo de Gavia in 1988. In fact, if you think of Andy Hampston in any context, he's no doubt sporting a pair of the Oakley Factory Pilot eye shades that he and compatriot Greg LeMond helped popularise in the 1980s. In their sole season together, in 1986, the Americans rocked a flamboyant range of sunglasses featuring almost every colour of their Mondrian-inspired La Vie Claire jerseys. In his maiden tour in 1986, the 24-year-old rode so well in support of teammates Le Monde and Eno that he almost joined them on the final podium. Hampston had been snapped up by Bernard Tappy's super team after impressing in the Giro a year earlier when, as an amateur, he was given a one-month contract with Wildcard 7-Eleven to make his Grand Tour debut. 
In the 2019 season, Hampston told Eurosport's Bradley Wiggins show that his 7-Eleven team rode the 1985 Giro like a bunch of cowboys. None of us understood any Italian, he says. We didn't care about the hierarchy of Italian cycling. We just wanted to race. It was a rare opportunity in 1985 for a group of Americans to do a fantastic race. We basically told them to F off. We knew how to swear in Italian. Maybe we could have been more diplomatic about it, but the 7-Eleven attitude when racing in Italy was, this is our chance, we've got to take it, their traditions don't mean that much to us at all. Despite their Battismo di Fuoco, or Baptism of Fire, the American rookies impressed. Ron Kiefel became the first American stage winner in a Grand Tour at Perugia before Hampston doubled up deep in the race. Fed up of playing domestique at La Vie Claire, Hampston returned to 7-Eleven in 1987, where he won the Tour de Suisse again, but struggled in the Tour. In the absence of defending champion Stephen Roche, however, Hampston was one of the outsiders for La Corsa Rossa in 1988. Tensions were high following the previous year's race, where the Tifosi had to endure an all-foreign podium topped by Roche, who famously got the better of his Italian teammate, the defending champion, Roberto Vicentini. So, says Hampston, it was a hostile atmosphere. We knew that if the Italians ganged up on us, it would be really tricky. Having grown up in North Dakota with its famously cold winters, Hampston was no stranger to riding in the cold. And in 7-Eleven, he had the perfect forward-looking team to prepare for the blizzard that the riders awoke to on the 5th of June, 1988. The team was based in Colorado, where most of the riders raced and trained, and so were familiar with the adverse conditions in the mountains. Manager Mike Neal sent his soigneurs to ski shops in the resort of Chiesa in Valmelenco in the morning to ensure his riders were prepared. On top of the thermal clothing, thick gloves, wool balaclavas, neck gaiters and ski hats, each rider was covered in lanolin wax sheep's wool fat impervious to water to effectively waterproof their bodies. The cherry on the cake was neoprene diving gloves, which ensured Hampston could grip the bars properly and manage his layers. Oddly, neither Hampston nor anyone else opted for leg warmers that day. I kept a pair of neoprene diving gloves on, knowing from experience that once your hands are frozen, you can't put on any other clothing, Hampston says. Each rider had a musette filled with dry clothes, which was taken to the summit of the gavia, while flasks of hot drinks were prepared. This might have seemed fairly rudimentary, but it was an attention to detail overlooked by many of the old-school European teams, some of whose riders did not even wear gloves or a hat that day, including the Malia Rossa, Franco Chioccioli. Speaking to O'Brien for his biography of the Giro, Hampston explained that 7-Eleven was the only team at that point that was intelligent and flexible enough to adapt to the conditions. The weather wasn't a complete surprise, he says. It wasn't a major technological advance. It was just common sense. We were always thinking about anything that could help. Why suffer more than you have to? It's fine to tell your grandkids about how hard it was, but if you're 30 minutes down because of it, it's an intellectual lapse not to prepare for that. Hampstead entered stage 14 from Chiesa to Bormio in fifth place, just over a minute behind the Italian race leader, Chioccioli. Just 120 kilometers long, the stage was all about the fearsome Gavia, which was being used for only the second time in the Giro's history, and the first since Charlie Gaul won in Bormio 28 years previously. With the finish again in Bormio at the foot of the descent, it was thought that whoever went over the summit of the Gavia in pole position would probably win the stage and gain enough time to win the whole race. And, having won at Salvino three days earlier, Hampston had shown that he was the man to beat. It was bucketing rain and sleeting, as cold and wet as could be, before we got to the base of the Gavia, Hampstead says. The team kept me drowned in hot sweet tea from the car, and I had three layers of rain gear and warm clothes. So I took all of those off, booties off, everything off, except for a very thin, long-sleeved undershirt, a wool jersey, but no hat. And I kept the diving gloves. 
Hampston put in a series of accelerations at the start of the climb to drop Chioccioli in the slush and whittled down the pack before throwing down the hammer around 14 kilometres from the summit. He could see his rivals further back down the mountain on the switchbacks, but stopped near the summit to put on a jacket, allowing Dutchman Eric Burkink of the powerhouse Panasonic team back into the fold. I thought I was in pretty good shape, and when I put on my wool hat and my neck warmer with four kilometres to go, I dried my hair with my hand and a snowball formed on my head, which I wasn't aware about until it rolled down my back. So I thought, I think I'm going well, but I'm already colder, so I've got to be careful not to lose my wits on the descent. Talking of which, the man who did reach the top in pole position lost his wits good and proper. Dutchman Johan van der Velde fought through the snowstorm to take the Chima copy on the summit ahead of Hampstead and Burkink, but at a cost. There was two feet of snow at the summit, and it was a fight for survival. The race convoy edged forward in a thickening blizzard, but van der Velde's reward for getting to the top first was a cup of water, a plastic cape and a cotton cap from his manager, who then told him to get going on the descent. Already borderline hypothermic, van der Velde allegedly needed a cup of tea from Hampstead's team car to give him the courage to get going again, but resorted to walking down on the steepest stretches of the icy road. He eventually finished three quarters of an hour behind. In their book on the hard men of cycling, the Voluminati summed up the state of play on the Gavia summit best. Chaos ensued. Hard men wept. Riders stopped at the side of the road and pissed on their hands and legs in a desperate attempt to warm their extremities. While Hampstead later admitted that he had to dig deeper psychologically than ever before, he did have a fresh set of clothes and that warm tea to revive him before the descent. First, he narrowly avoided colliding with a dazed mechanic stumbling along with two wheels. Then he passed Burkink on the dirt and gravel section despite his gears being frozen, except for the 5314 and a visibility of 50 metres. With 10 kilometres remaining, the snow turned to rain. Then, with 5 kilometres remaining, Hampstead was caught and dropped by Burkink. At this point, he couldn't have cared less about the stage win. He just wanted to get to the finish to warm up, ideally not passing the hotel on the way, for it would have posed too much of a temptation for him not to stop. Burkink took the win by seven seconds. Hampstead jumped straight into his team car to recover. Inside, he took stock of the situation, but only grew anxious at the realisation of how demanding the day had been. Then, anger set in. Where was his team management, and why hadn't they told him where he was on GC? Then he heard the loudspeaker announcing the arrival of Roberto Tomasini in third place, four minutes, 39 seconds down, with the Malia Rosa coming seventh and conceding five minutes. Hampstead's brave ride through the blizzard had earned him his nation's first ever pink jersey. He now led Burkink by 15 seconds and a distraught Chioccioli, who complained that the stage should never have taken place, by three minutes, 54 seconds. So, what happened next? Hampstead held on to the Malia Rosa all the way to Vittorio Veneto, but it wasn't easy. He extended his lead over Burkink in stage 15 after the Stelvio was cut from the route, but the bad weather continued to take its toll. Stage 16 saw the riders grind to a stop in a tunnel on the road to Innsbruck to shelter from the elements. They agreed to neutralise the stage only for that man, Chioccioli, to put in an attack. 7-11 and Burkink's Panasonic combined to chase down the Italian schemer, but then Chioccioli broke the agreement once again with another underhand dig. Karma prevailed. On a fast, wet and treacherous descent to the finish, one the riders were supposed to have neutralised but were riding full gas because of Chioccioli, Hampstead heard the noise of a crash as the peloton zipped across a wooden bridge. Turning round, he saw the rider who had gone down. It was Chioccioli. Hampstead would take a minute from Burkink while winning the time trial in stage 18, but the race still wasn't over. In fact, a break by Stefano Giuliani and Er Zimmermann in stage 19 to Arta Terma put the Swiss rider into the virtual Maglia Rossa. But 7-11 fought back to limit the losses ahead of two final sprint stages. 
and the race was Hamston's. The first and only American to win the Giro did so by 1 minute 43 seconds over Birkink and 2 minutes 45 seconds over Zimmerman. A year later, Hampston finished third as Laurent Fignon took the spoils. He never won a Grand Tour again, but enjoyed two more top tens on the Giro and three at the Tour. 7-Eleven might have upset the apple cart when they first entered the Giro, but Hampston's heroic saw the Tifosi fall in love with cycling again. It was reminiscent of the golden age of Italian cycling, of the snowy exploits of Alfredo Binder in the 1930s and Giulio Campagnolo on the Croce Duone in 1927. Fresh-faced, boyish and lean, Hampston had shown himself to be tougher than most that day. Riding on a huffy bike and sporting the latest fashion trends from Oakley, he represented something new for cycling, a modern-day star who marked a changing of the guard and, after Le Mans' success, underlined the arrival of the new world in a sport traditionally dominated by the old order. Hampston now says of his ride on the Gavia, It was certainly the hardest and most challenging experience I've had as an athlete, but it was also the most gratifying, for it marked the moment that Hampston's dreams of being a bike racer, riding a grand tour, and doing so on a, as he says, great team of friends, all came together and reached fruition with his seizing of the Malia Rosa. More than 30 years on, in 2019, stage 16 of the 102nd edition of the Giro was supposed to commemorate Hampston's landmark ride through horrendous conditions. The planned 226-kilometer stage boasted almost 6,000 meters of climbing and was supposed to see the riders tackle the Gavia ahead of the double-digit gradient of the Mortarolo en route to a finish at Ponte di Legno. But, ironically enough, heavy snowfall on the Gavia put pay to that idea. Despite initial hopes that the road would be cleared in time, the summit remained blocked by a wall of snow more than three meters high at points. The risk of avalanche and concerns over the iciness of the descent forced the hand of race director Mauro Vegni. The same people who tear their hair out each year when it doesn't rain during Paris-Roubaix might have been disappointed. But the truth of the matter is that new safety laws in Italy and the UCI Extreme Weather Protocol means it's very unlikely that we'll ever witness again anything remotely similar to what Hampston and Birkink pulled off on the snow-swept Gavia more than 30 years ago. And that is probably the ultimate tribute that could be afforded to Birkink's bravery and Hampston's heroics. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, produced by Pete Burton. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze and you can follow me at Graham Wilgos. You can also follow Eurosport at Eurosport underscore UK. Plus, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Join us for our next episode when we'll be looking back to 1937, when defending Tour de France champion Sylvain Maas, just days away from Paris, withdrew his entire Belgian team while wearing the yellow jersey. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.